Hello, and welcome to the Bite of History podcast. I'm your host, Charles Hayes, and I want to welcome you to our inaugural episode. I'm excited, as I hope you are, to get the show off the ground. But before we get into our first topic, I'd like to take a few moments to discuss the premise of the show for folks who may not have been following on Twitter or visited the website yet. The aim of this show will be to take a look at the history of the human race through the lens of the foods we eat. Each episode I will examine a specific food or dish and discuss the cultural, historical, and scientific aspects of the subject. For hundreds of thousands of years we as a species have shaped the foods we eat and been shaped by them. Our food has evolved alongside us, dictating and influencing our daily lives as we work to feed ourselves and our families influencing our spiritual lives in the form of ritual holidays, feast days, and holy ceremonies, and challenging our understanding of the world around us as we strive to learn how what we eat affects us and how we can control those effects. Food has brought strangers and families together, torn nations and communities asunder, and served as an instrument of inspirational leaders and monstrous despots alike. It tells the story of us, because in so many ways, we are what we eat. This show will combine historical and scientific data to try and paint a picture of who we are from this perspective. Now, while food and history are my two greatest passions, the technical side of podcasting is completely new to me. So please, forgive any minor breaks in audio or potentially awkward moments on my part. I started this show with the goal of helping others learn, but I'm finding this to be an education unto itself. The current target is one 20 to 30 minute show per month with the intent to grow from there. For information on current and upcoming episodes, recipes, and more, you can check out the website at biteofhistorypodcast.com or on Twitter at biteofhistory. Episodes will be available on the website and from iTunes directly. Finally, you can email me any ideas for episodes, critiques, or suggestions at the Wandering Chef at biteofhistory.com. We're all in this together, and I hope that together we can build a community of listeners hungry to share and learn. All right, enough housekeeping. Let's get started. So, did you catch the Super Bowl? Attend a party? Go to a bar? Or just kick back at home to watch? Did you go grocery shopping a week or two ahead of the game even? If so, you probably saw or partook in what has over the past half century become one of America's most iconic party foods, guacamole. It's been estimated that as much as 8 million pounds or 4,000 tons of guacamole is eaten on Super Bowl Sunday alone. That's 3,600,000 kilograms for my non-U.S. listeners. Think about it another way. That's about the weight of 25 full-grown blue whales. And remember, this is just one single Sunday. Of course, it's also a favorite for picnics, grill-outs, restaurants, you name it. All this is to say, I think we can all agree, guacamole is firmly established as America's favorite fruit dip. You heard me. Fruit dip. And it's the much misunderstood and increasingly in-demand main ingredient of that recipe that we're going to be discussing today. The avocado. The avocado is, in many ways, unique to the fruit family. 
I mean, just look at it. Black or green leathery skin, sometimes knobbly and not at all floral in scent. Cut it open, and this berry will continue to defy normal classification with its green, creamy flesh. It's low in sugar, high in fat, and abundant in nutrients not typically found in such variety with other fruits and berries. Avocados are a good source of omega-3 fats, which have been shown to promote cardiovascular health. They are also a good source of carotenoids, the colored pigments in fruits which work as antioxidants in the body to help prevent the corruption of cellular DNA, which can otherwise lead to cancer. While many fruits and vegetables have a good amount of some of these compounds, the fat present in avocados actually helps aid in the body's resorption of them, as the carotenoids are fat-soluble. Therefore, the avocado provides both the healthy compound and the fat needed for the body to retain them. Pretty cool. They're also a good source of vitamin K and fiber, magnesium, phosphorus, and iron. And one more fun fact, they actually contain more potassium than bananas. The list goes on, but the point is, they have rightly been called a superfood. Not that this is free license to gorge yourself on them. Moderation, everyone, please. The FDA in July of 2016 actually increased the serving size for avocados to 50 grams. That's about a third of a typical avocado. If you're interested in more information on avocado nutrition, check out the blog post corresponding with this episode on the site for full nutritional info. So, avocados. Where did they come from? And what's with the funky name, anyway? Before I started researching this topic, I'd always assumed that it was somehow linked to the Spanish word for lawyer, abogado, or the Italian equivalent, maybe, avocato, both of which follow from the Latin word for advocate. Makes sense, right? Except it's dead wrong. The funny thing is, this misinterpretation was widespread from the very beginning, and, in fact, the French term for the fruit, avocat, is the same as the word for lawyer, due entirely to this simple mix-up, and probably due also to our species' complete inability to simply admit when we've made a mistake. But this right here is one of the things that I just love about history. These little misunderstandings that send echoes into the future. And in fact, the history of the name is actually steeped in mistranslation and misunderstanding. Not to mention sex, bloody conquest, and untold slaughter. Before we get into all that, though, let's talk a little bit about the unique features of this fruit. The oblong shape, knobbly skin, and dark green color of many varieties led to an alternate name for the fruit, the alligator pear. If you've never heard this name, you can thank an all-out marketing campaign that started with grassroots support with farmers in the 1920s and ran all the way through the 90s, led by the California Avocado Commission to rebrand the fruit and make it more appealing to the average American. The campaign even featured a man in a full-body avocado suit named Mr. Ripe Guy going door-to-door -door with a chef, giving serving and cooking demos in U.S. cities. Yes, the 90s were a simpler time. Well, all these strange characteristics of the berry, which made it so hard to market in the early years of U.S. production, has a lot to do with the fact that this fruit, much like the alligator for which its ill-begotten nickname is derived, 
is a living fossil. It's a throwback from a different time, an age of giants. According to Connie Barlow, author of a very compelling book called Ghosts of Evolution, the avocado evolved during the beginning of the Cenozoic era. This was the period of time after the extinction of the dinosaurs, about 65 million years ago, when enormous mammals like the giant sloth, mammoth, and giant armadillo roamed the earth. The ancient ancestors of avocados in those times were far more similar to the wild varieties that can still be found today in their native South American jungles, or by the unlucky shopper in the produce aisle despite an agonizing ten minutes trying to pick the right one. The seed, or pit, of the fruit was larger, and there was far less edible flesh surrounding it. To us today, this would hardly be recognized as edible. To a passing woolly mammoth or giant armadillo rooting through the undergrowth, though, well, these would be a welcome bite-sized source of fiber and fat. After all, modern-day berries rely on animals like birds and rodents to eat the fruit and then deposit the seeds along with some fertilizing fecal matter to give it a good head start. This would have been the same evolutionary strategy employed by the primordial avocado. Giant mammals would eat this fat-rich fruit and deposit the seeds miles from the parent tree, thus ensuring both genetic diversity within the species and help spread the plants across Mesoamerica. The term Mesoamerica, by the way, defines both a geographic region and cultural area that begins in what is now central Mexico and stretches south to northern South America. But then, around 13,000 years ago, during what has become known as the Pleistocene extinction, these large mammals, known as megafauna, completely disappeared from the face of the Earth. The jury is still out as to why, though one of the most popular theories is that they were simply hunted to extinction by early humans. In his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond points out that pretty much everywhere in the world where we can approximate the time early humans arrived, megafauna like mammoths and giant sloths inevitably and completely disappeared within a few thousand years. Correlation does not equal causation, and we should keep that in mind. But it's interesting to note how this pattern has repeated itself the world over. Humans arrive on a continent or in a specific region, and a few thousand years later, all slow-moving, well-marbled and delicious megafauna mysteriously disappear. Food for thought. Regardless of the cause of the Pleistocene extinction, the result was that suddenly, the avocado's ancient ancestors were in trouble. What was a bite-sized snack for its evolutionary counterparts was an oversized ordeal for the creatures that remained. No guinea pig, chinchilla, or taper was about to eat and pass that whopper of a seed. I'm just going to let that image sink in. Anyway, the meager flesh of the early fruit itself wasn't really worth going out of the way for. In one of those funny twists of history, though, the humans who had been the bane of the megafauna would become the saving grace of this prehistoric berry. Though this would be completely incidental to the main goal of early humans, which was simply the desire to have enough food to keep on keeping on. This is a concept we will return to time and again, as this series goes on. The domestication of plants and animals has, until very recently, never really been a conscious process, but
but more the product of cooperative evolution between humans and the foods we eat. Tom Standage does a very good job of illustrating this in his book An Edible History of Humanity. In short, one has to remember that the plants and animals we eat today evolved alongside our ancient ancestors who were just doing what they could to get by and have enough food to feed themselves and their relatives. In that environment, you take any windfall you can find and take advantage of any low-hanging fruit. In many cases, the constant interference of humanity with the plants and animals they came into contact with forced evolution to go in a different direction than it otherwise would have. That is, had it remained uninterrupted by human activity. Some simple examples are peas and wheat stalks. The ancestors of these staple crops are seed pods and wild grasses. In their natural environment, in order to procreate, they need to be able to release and spread their seeds. For that reason, the most effective varieties would have pods that open to release their seeds, or stems that would have reached a point where the slightest touch or wind would cause them to shatter, scattering the seeds in all directions. You've probably noticed this at some point, found an empty seed pod hanging from a tree, or walked through a field only to end up covered in fibrous seed casings from tall grasses. This makes sense. Since a seed pod not opening, or grass seeds not dispersing from the stalk, would only prevent them from being eaten by a passing bird or rodent and finding a good place to take root, especially if they remain there throughout the season and into winter, only to die. Therefore, the genetic traits that manifested these undesirable characteristics would have been the less common ones. Mutant genes that really weren't good for much from a natural selection standpoint. Then along comes humanity to stir everything up. Because it's a heck of a lot easier to pick a seed pod full of ready-to-eat, nutrient-rich peas right off the tree than it is to scour the dirt for individual morsels. And the same goes for collecting early varieties of wheat and barley. If the stalks shatter and all the seeds go flying when you try to harvest it, you're going to pay attention to and focus on the ones that defy the norm. In this way, the genetic mutants who may otherwise have been bred out due to natural selection instead came to the fore thanks to the symbiotic relationship they formed with their human cultivators. Now, let's put this in context with our subject, the avocado, a fruit with a huge seed and just enough flesh to entice a passing giant sloth or mammoth makes a lot of sense. Why waste precious resources producing a lot of flesh at the expense of a smaller, less nutrient-packed seed with which to begin the life of a new tree? As long as there was enough flesh on the fruit to get an animal to swallow it, it would have had a great chance at reproducing when it was deposited along with a few kilos of fresh fertilizer. However, Over time, humans would have selected for avocados with just these very traits, thereby forcing evolution to follow a path that would have been completely counterintuitive in nature. Now, it's important to remember that this is not something particular to the human race. The whole concept of evolution is tied to the idea that individual species adapt according to their environment. And that same environment includes all the other organisms 
a particular species interacts with. It's just that no other creature has been so extensive in its application or as intense in its focus on changing its environment to suit its needs, as has been the human race. Make of this what you will. The oldest evidence we have for the domestication and consumption of the avocado dates back to around 10,000 years ago in the south-central area of what is now the state of Puebla in modern-day Mexico. It's likely that humans were eating the wild fruit from the very beginning, though, and evidence of consumption of early avocados have been found in various caves throughout Mesoamerica. Here, ancient civilizations like the Aztecs and Maya flourished in the centuries before European conquest. The avocado tree is and was widespread throughout Central and South America. The eating of the fruit and its gradual domestication was not an isolated event. Many different civilizations throughout Mesoamerica would have benefited from cultivating this nutritious fruit, selecting for the particular plants that yielded berries with more flesh, a smaller pit, and thinner skin. This resulted in at least three ancient varieties we know of today that were cultivated in different geographic locations throughout Mesoamerica. The information we have on these ancient varieties comes from the few remaining codexes recorded by the ancient civilizations of the region that have survived European conquest and the ravages of time. The Mexican avocado originated in central Mexico, in the Puebla region, which we discussed earlier. The Guatemalan avocado, from farther south, and which was more adapted to tropical climes than its highland cousin. And the West Indian avocado, which has nothing to do with the West Indies at all and is just another European misnomer, was cultivated in the wet tropical lowlands of the Maya in Central America. These three varieties had distinctive shapes, skin colors, and textural differences, but all were distinctive from their wild cousins. Again, having more flesh and less pit. But for all the different peoples who cultivated and benefited from this wonderful fruit, it's the Aztecs whom we have to thank, in a roundabout way, for the name we call it by today. And now we come to the long-awaited sex, blood, and slaughter of the whole story. Havacat, and I'm probably butchering that, was the Aztec word for the fruit, which is a name almost as difficult to spell for a Westerner like me as it is to pronounce. It is also the word for testicle in the native Aztec language, Nahuatl. Besides the anatomical similarity, or perhaps because of it, the Aztecs believed that the fruit was a powerful fertility aid and aphrodisiac. When Europeans got their hands on them, this trend was set to continue into modern times. Just another hurdle the marketing team at the California Avocado Commission would eventually need to work around. It's even said that the Sun King, Louis of France, nicknamed the avocado Le Bon Poix, the Good Pear, because of its <coughs> invigorating properties. As you may have also guessed by now, the first Europeans, Spaniards, to encounter the fruit weren't very successful in adopting the original name, avocado. But they did their best, hence, avocado. And with that, we get to the blood and guts of it all. Because, as you may remember from elementary school, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 
he established footholds in the Caribbean in the name of Queen Isabella of Spain, from which forays into Mesoamerica could be launched. There were many small ventures made into modern-day Mexico and South America by various explorers, cartographers, and speculators in the years to follow. The earliest Westerner to make record of the avocado was Martín Fernández de Enciso, a conquistador, which is just a Spanish word for conqueror. He traveled in the early 1500s through parts of South and Central America with the famous cartographer Juan de la Cosa, who is widely credited as drawing up the first European map to include the Americas. You can see an image of the map on the website under the post for this episode. In his book, Suma de Geografica que Trata de Todas las Partidas del Mundo, <coughs> published in Sevilla, Spain in 1519, Enciso detailed his encounter with the fruit in Colombia. Wilson Popeno, an exploratory botanist who was a founding member of the California Avocado Society in the early 1900s, translates part of Enciso's book as follows. Before reaching Santa Marta is Yajaro, which lies at the foot of the snow mountains. Yajaro is a good port, with good lands, and here are groves of many different sorts of edible fruits. Among others is one which looks like an orange, and when it is ready for eating it turns yellowish. That which it contains is like butter and is of marvelous flavor, so good and pleasing to the palate that it is a marvelous thing. Santa Marta, by the way, is a Colombian city still occupied to this day, and if you want a picture of paradise, just Google it. Another major event happened in the collective history of Mesoamerica and the avocado in that year, because if in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue, well... Then in 1519, Cortes went a-conquering. Hernán Cortes, the famously brazen and ruthless Spanish conquistador, began his life as the son of a noble family of little means. During his teens, he spent some time training to be a notary, but sources indicate he was too restless for legal work and probably got himself in some hot water besides. So instead, he set out for the New World and wound up a colonist on the island of Hispaniola, in the Spanish Caribbean. He would build a name for himself by joining the Spanish conquest of Cuba, and enter politics and business, largely dealing with the exploitation of native labor and slavery. Along with being supremely confident and determined, Cortes was widely known as headstrong and impulsive, getting into trouble with married women and prone to angry outbursts. This earned him the ire of many of his contemporaries, along with the respect and fear of others. One of those contemporaries was Diego Velázquez, the governor of Cuba, who had fallen to both camps. Velázquez had helped Cortés to obtain the position of magistrate, basically the mayor, of Santiago, which was Cuba's largest city at the time. Their relationship was one of necessity and mutual respect. Cortés was nothing if not determined when given a task, but over time this relationship was stained by Cortés' propensity for scandal and exacerbated, it said, by Cortés' involvement with two of the sisters of Velázquez's wife. So this and other matters of pride and envy began to divide the two compatriots. Even though Cortés was an indispensable asset to Velázquez, and even part of the family, 
Yeah, he ended up marrying one of those sister-in-laws. Then in 1518, Velazquez put Cortez in charge of a mission to penetrate Mexico's mysterious inland and find the gold and treasure fabled to be there. But for reasons relating to their standing personal differences, Velazquez revoked Cortez's charter for the expedition at the last moment. Well, Cortez said poo and went on his merry way in spite of this, even stopping over in Trinidad, Cuba, to recruit extra men. All in all, with about 11 ships and 500 men, Cortez arrived in Veracruz, Mexico, claimed sovereignty over the town from the Cuban governor Velazquez, and proceeded to sink his own ships. This was done to drive home to his men and his enemies alike that it would be conquest or death. This combined with his outright mutiny in the face of Velazquez's revocation of the original charter meant that Cortes would have to either return a hero or die a traitor. So he set about recruiting what natives he could, ruthlessly crushed all dissenters, and prepared to march on the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, which is on the same site where modern-day Mexico City now stands. The Spanish were armed with firearms, steel weapons and armor, and had cannon and even a few horsemen. Despite far superior numbers, the Aztec warriors were no match with their obsidian weapons and cloth garments. Cortes also employed many rival native tribesmen to help with his conquest, recruiting thousands to join his force. After almost a year of skirmishes and one-sided battles, Cortes marched on Tenochtitlan on November 8th, 1519, and he took hostage the Emperor Montezuma II and established him as a puppet monarch. Effectively, Cortes took control of the city and the Aztec Empire in one fell swoop. From there, the story devolves into an even greater tragedy of betrayal, European greed, and rival posturing by other conquistadors seeking to take a piece of the pie for themselves. Disease and famine would spread throughout the Aztec Empire until the population was devastated, centuries of culture destroyed, and the ruling elite of the city massacred. The Aztec Empire would never recover from the blow these alien invaders had dealt them. No one really knows how many Mesoamericans died in Cortes' conquest and subsequent Spanish occupations and invasions of the continent. It's estimated that around 15 million Aztecs alone lived in Mesoamerica around the time Cortes first set out in 1519. Tenochtitlan, the capital, is estimated to have had 80,000 to 130,000 inhabitants at that time. This was larger than almost all but the largest European cities. Paris at this same time had 185,000 residents. Less than 30 years after the conquest of Tenochtitlan in 1521 by Cortes, it's estimated that around only 4 million remained. By 1581, it was less than 2 million. Entire cities and towns were abandoned. Entire cultures, languages, and tribes simply disappeared from the faiths of the earth. The epidemics of smallpox and typhus brought by the Spanish and the rats that followed them on their ships to the New World proved far more deadly than the steel and guns they carried with them. It's hard to wrap your head around these kinds of numbers. Over 11 million people died in barely half a century, 
Within two generations, the entire Mesoamerican world changed from a melting pot of tribal cultures and customs, centuries old, to a wasteland populated with ghost towns and scattered remnants of people trying to hang on to what remained of their identity and culture. Keep in mind that many of these cultures relied on oral tradition and elders to pass on the knowledge and history of their people's forebears. What happens when there's no elders to pass that on? What happens to a society? Can society even go on at that point? It would have seemed like the end of the world to those few that survived these epidemics and wars, and to those that were born into it, well, think about it this way. The Syrian war started in 2011. What must it be like for a ten-year-old living in Mosul, who has known nothing but hunger and fear? Now multiply that across an entire civilization, across several generations, and multiply the Jewish death toll of the Holocaust by two. Still hard to grasp, and staggering in its scale, but I hope it gives at least a little perspective. Because the more one studies history, the clearer it becomes that events such as these may fade into the fabric of the past, but their effects carry on to the present. But we were talking about avocados. Despite the devastation to the native civilizations, the avocat of the Aztecs lived on. Different bastardizations of the word emerged, avocate, avocatas, and the alligator pear, as one creative English journalist would dub it. Other names like butterfruit and cheese pear emerged in other locales. The fruit found its way to the elite ruling classes in Europe and became a novelty, expensive and rare. Most needed to be shipped overseas from the colonies, since the tree was only able to grow in the most southern parts of Europe and the odd greenhouse. This trend continued into the 20th century, until the cultivation of the fruit in the Americas became a magnet for investors and growers trying to monetize it as a new cash crop. So we return to our friend Frederick Popeno, who we discussed earlier. He was an exploratory botanist and horticulturalist, who explored Central and South America trying to find the best avocado specimens, and brought several of these specimens back to California in 1911. Then came the Great Freeze of 1913. This was a period of unusually cold weather that swept across most of the United States over the course of four days. On January 4th, temperatures in the San Bernardino Valley, California, dropped from the typical 60s into the teens and stayed there. Historians claim these few days may have had a greater effect on local grower communities and economies than the Great Depression, as it decimated citrus and vegetable crops all across the Southwest. But one of the avocado trees Popeno brought back survived the freeze, and that is the origin of what has become known as the Fuerte Avocado. Fuerte, which is Spanish for strong, is in reference to the hardiness of that particular breed. Before this time, growers were wary of planting avocados, as merely a light frost could destroy the crops and even kill the trees. With the discovery of the Fuerte variety, though, the growers of California had a reliable, tough breed they could use to produce avocados with far less fear of such losses. 
As discussed earlier, in the 1920s, the California Avocado Commission emerged as the driving force behind marketing for the fruit. Even with the rise of the Fuerte breed, trying to convert it from a luxury item was a tough step. Avocados had traditionally been a seasonal fruit, not blooming year-round. Starting in the mid-20s, though, a mail carrier by the name of Rudolf Haas changed all that. A hobbyist grower who planted avocados on a one-and-a-half-acre lot on the side while he worked as a mailman, Hass obtained the seeds from a Mr. A.R. Rideout, who was known for collecting the seeds from anywhere, even trash heaps and restaurant garbage cans. On the advice of Mr. Rideout, Hass would plant three seeds, pull up the two weakest, and then graft the strongest tree with the help of a hired grafting expert. Haas knew little of botany, but persisted in his experiments in horticulture. Then one seed purchased from Rideout produced a tree that gave a high yield and bore fruit year-round. Haas focused on this variety and grafted multiple trees with cuttings from the original. By 1926, at the local grocery store, Haas could sell his avocados for a dollar apiece. That's $14 today. All Haas avocados grown today are the result of grafts taken from that original avocado tree, or seeds planted from the same. Grafting is the technique of taking a branch from one tree, called the scion, and attaching it to the vascular tissue of a host plant, called the rootstock. Essentially, it's the process of taking advantage of a healthy tree's root system to grow fruit that is genetically identical to the tree from which the scion was taken. In this way, a tree that yields undesirable fruit can be utilized to host the fruit from a more desirable plant, and it has the advantage of being able to grow the fruit you want without waiting for a tree to reach full maturity to produce fruit, as would be necessary if you just planted a seed and waited. Since avocado trees don't begin producing fruit until 5 to 13 years of age, grafting is often the only way to ensure a reliable and lucrative crop. Due to its flavor, hardiness, and ability to produce fruit year-round, the Haas avocado today accounts for more than 80% of the avocados produced worldwide. Still, in the 1970s, avocados were retailing for almost $5 in current conversion rates. The avocado was still very much a luxury item, served at dinner parties to impress guests, and seen as a food for the rich. Enter the California Avocado Commission and our old pal, Mr. Ripe Guy, from the beginning of the episode. Decades on, the crusade to turn the avocado from an ancient aphrodisiac into an American staple seemed to have succeeded. Farmers are growing more, and it's become widely accepted in a variety of dishes and forms. The fruit, once exclusive to the western states in Central and South America, has become a crop grown in temperate and tropical climates from New Zealand to China, to Rwanda, to Sri Lanka, and Israel. The market is continuing to grow. Preparation of the fruit runs the gamut from guacamole, to meat substitutes and sandwiches, to garnishes, soups, sauces, and smoothies. So the next time you pick up an alligator pear, remember... You're holding something special, something from another time, a fruit once thought magical, sometimes vulgar, with a history rooted in European conquest and hostility. But simply, you're holding a piece of history. Take a bite. If you enjoyed the show, 
or of comments or feedback, I'd love to hear about it. You can email me at thewanderingchef at biteofhistory.com or leave comments on the blog post for this episode at the website at biteofhistorypodcast.com or leave an iTunes review. This would mean a lot to me and help me figure out what to focus on improving for the next show. Until next time, stay hungry, my friends.